All right, everybody, just want to remind you to grab a communion cup if you have not done so as of yet. Uh, a few announcements before we get into the sermon. want to again remind you about community groups throughout the week. I hope that you join. You can go online. You can find uh, the emails of the community group leaders. You can reach out to them and find out how they are gathering. They are doing it sort of differently, under, again, under the circumstances. want to remind you of the Connect cards that are there in front of you, as well as for you watching online. Uh, digital Connect cards. Uh, for you online, you can just scroll down and click on that button and fill out the information there for you guys here. I hope that you will uh, fill out the Connect cards while I'm giving the sermon or while we're singing. The Connect cards are really just a way for us to know how we might be able to pray for you or how we can serve you uh, in this time. That's really the motivation for those cards. So please, even you regular attenders, even members, please fill them out because they are uh, a great help and tool for me and others who are praying for you. We also want to announce that we're going to have a members meeting on August 23rd. So that's a Sunday, August 23rd. So if you would mark your calendars for that day, we would love for as many people to come and be here as possible, as many members. Um, I think what we're probably going to do um, is create some sort of way to, to vote and see how many people will actually show up. And if we get too many people, or if we get a lot of people as a positive, uh, rather I'll say, maybe we'll try and think of a, of, a, of a different way to gather other than collecting all in one space. Uh, of course, we'll do it on Zoom, but we'll try and uh, think creatively and so we can gather as many people together to hear and celebrate what God is doing here at the church. Uh, also, I want to remind you that in the Wednesday newsletter, you can sign up for that on the website, but this week's Wednesday newsletter, I challenged everyone to pray for 15 minutes a day until uh, our members meeting on August 23rd. So I hope that you're doing that. I hope that it's fruitful. I just wanted to give you something to, to pray for. Uh, Marley and Patrick, uh, Marley's a member here at the church and has served faithfully for, uh, in the city of Pickerington in Young Life, but also here at the church. Uh, they are getting married on Friday. So if you would be praying for them. Oh, Marley's here. I forgot. Yeah, Marley. Hey, Marley. Um, so uh, be praying for them. Uh, also tonight, Maria and Baker will be uh, married uh, to one another, which is a wonderful thing. And then last night, Stephen and Becca, uh, now Eccles, are, uh, were married, which is wonderful. So uh, lots of marriages going on, and then Chris and Kristen will be married the following weekend. So lots to be praying for, lots to be lifting up, which is a wonderful thing. So now, with that sentiment, why don't we, uh, why don't we pray, and then we'll get into the sermon. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done here at Maranatha. Lord, we know that there are challenging times, unique times, things that we uh, haven't really dealt with in the past. Um, one, as a church, but also, two, for a long time. And I, I just pray for hearts to be, uh, to be charitable to one another, to, to recognize that we are all trying to operate with wisdom and with um, uh, careful steps, but also uh, to live the life that you have given us uh, freely. We are grateful, Lord, for the grace and the salvation that you've provided through your Son. Uh, let that be what unites us. Uh, especially here at Maranatha. Lord, we are grateful for this church. We are grateful that you have chosen us to be this body. And um, Lord, let us use our gifts. Give us the, the strength and the courage to do so. Uh, be with me as I preach this sermon. And uh, I pray, Lord, that it, uh, it brings about worship. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so last week, Kyle illustrated for us the intense table scene that we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 when Mary sought to honor Jesus by uh, pouring her incredibly expensive and fragrant oil over his feet while humbling herself with this sort of unexpected form of worship when she got down on her own knees and wiped his hair, uh, wiped his feet rather with her hair. 
And we were challenged then by Kyle to consider really our own ways of worshiping our Lord. And I would encourage you to continue in that question within yourself, to continue questioning yourself, how do I draw closer to Christ in worship? What am I willing to do? Because it it matters so much for us when we feel the call to worship. Are you constantly concerned with the environment that you're in? Are you constantly concerned with who is watching or what else might be happening around you? Or are you thinking too much about what you're about to do next? Are you thinking too much? Are you too concerned with the time frame that you have, simply eager to get on with the prayer so you can move on to more pressing items? Or are you so enamored with our King? Are you so enthralled by Christ our King that your only concern is to worship Him? Your only concern is to worship Him And what we saw in Mary was that, what we saw last week in Mary is that she didn't abide by the cultural norm of worship. She showed her Savior and Lord that everything she had was His. Everything that she possessed was given by Him. And in today's passage, what we're going to see is even more responses to the worshiping of Jesus Christ. And like Kyle said last week, this chapter, chapter 12, which we're in now, is sort of this heel turn that John gives us towards the cross. So far, John has been proving to us Jesus Christ's divinity. He's been proving his identity over and over and over again by the signs that are pointing us to who Christ is. And now here in chapter 12, again, we are simply now headed to the cross. Today, we will look at Jesus' actual triumphal entry to Jerusalem, the actual movement, the moment where he goes to Jerusalem as he moves towards the sovereignty appointed time for his death. In fact, I want to give a quick simple side note about Mary from last week. Remember how uh, I mentioned the burial process and how it went about in this time, back in chapter 11 when Lazarus was still dead? He would, uh, or what they would have done for Lazarus is they would have wrapped his body in heavy spices, and even at times, if available, if they had enough money, they would pour fragrant oil over the body as a way to sort of cloak the smell of decay. Well, some commentators say, say that Mary, when she poured the oil out on Christ's feet, she unknowingly, uh, symbolically anointed Jesus for his death, again, when she poured that very valuable oil over him. So why do I bring up this side note when we're not talking about this? Well, the side note from last, uh, last week's sermon, which is in chapter 12, this side note is simply meant to, to show us again that God the Father has purposed this plan from the beginning. Everything that we see in the Gospels are showing us Christ and are, are, are pointing us to what Christ has come to do. So let's get on with this sermon. Uh, chapter 12, verses Uh, 12 through 19, and we stand in reverence for God's Word. So if you would, uh, rise with me if you can. You can follow along on the screens. There's Bibles in front of you, but let me read and let us hear God's Word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him, uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that? You're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would have a seat, let me pray one more time. Thank God for his word. Father, thank you again for what you or how you communicate to us, Lord. It is such an incredible gift that you speak to us through your scriptures, that we have a place that we can hear of you daily uh, as we can go to you, Lord. Father, please, with your spirit, give us greater faith. Give us a deeper understanding of what this passage is communicating. Help our worship, Lord, to be faithful and honorable to you. It's in your son's name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so like I said, there are multiple responses to the worshiping of Jesus Christ in this passage. We, of course, have the disciples because they always traveled with Jesus. We also have the crowd who, was just, who had just witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead in Bethany. Then we have those who heard about Jesus' miracles and his power, so they come out of the city to join the crowd And we have the religious Jewish leaders whom I imagine are sort of standing back in their arrogance, sort of loftily looking over the crowd as they watched from their high places. Now this passage, or this part of the gospel narrative, is one of the more famous parts of Jesus' life. And the reason for this is because chapter 12, verse 12, begins the final week of Jesus' life here on earth. This moment, this this moment in all the gospel narratives is the moment of the final week of Jesus' final week here on earth. This week is called or is known as Passion Week. It's the week before the cross. This passage is preached on so often because of how important it is to the church because, again, it's so linkly connected to our tradition of Easter. It's linked to that time of his time on the cross. And of course, Easter is when we celebrate uh, uh, Jesus Christ's resurrection, but it's the week prior to Easter. It's the Sunday after or before Easter Sunday, which is called Palm Sunday, that this passage is actually talking about, okay? So we're not on Easter Sunday, we are on the Sunday prior, which is Palm Sunday. And it's on that day... And with this part of the story that we, the church, commemorate when Jesus figuratively sets his direction towards the cross. And because it's preached on so often, because it's preached on year after year around the time of Easter, this passage has, for some, become a bit ordinary. This passage can seem a bit ordinary because we're so used to hearing it. And in hopes to make it feel new each and every year, preachers have time and time again begun to lean on emotionalizing this story. But I would say that just the words themselves are not ordinary. I would say that the words themselves are in fact electric. This passage doesn't need my help. This passage doesn't need a preacher's help to to, to bring forth the truth and the beauty and the wonderment that is in there. This passage, once again, has one of those unknown prophetic declarations that openly points us to God's great purpose and plan for his people through his son. 
a wonderful opportunity for us to see how God is operating in this time. All right, so let's, let's, let's walk through these verses so we can try and reveal that, that moment. And um, let's walk through this as we look at each group who, and, and their response to the worshiping of Jesus. So the text begins by telling us that there's this large group of Jewish people who came out of the city of Jerusalem to meet up with Jesus and the crowd that has been following him. Now, John gives us sort of this commentator's note there in verse 17 about this crowd who arrived with Jesus, right? So it begins by talking about this crowd who comes out of Jerusalem and joins this other crowd, and John gives us a commentator's note in verse 17 about the crowd that came with Jesus. This crowd who came with Jesus just witnessed him, again, back in Bethany, perform almost this unimaginable miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And their response, what we see happen is that they were so struck with awe that they just couldn't stop. They just had to continue to bear witness to what they felt like they participated in. Now, I imagine if you saw somebody raised from the dead, you would probably tell a person or two, right? Right? It would be hard to not tell that story, don't you think? Now, it's pretty much a formal obligation for all Jewish people to go to Jerusalem at this time because it was the time of Passover. We know it as Easter, but this is also known as the time of Passover. Passover was a yearly celebration that was set by God to remind his people of what he did back in Egypt when he rescued them from their slavery under Pharaoh. Now, in this time of the Exodus, what we call it, it's found in the book of Exodus, in this final act of uh, God's rescue mission, we have uh, was to have his people sacrifice an unblemished lamb, smear its blood on the doorposts of their house as a way to identify themselves as believers. And in doing so, the Spirit of the Lord would pass over their house that night, and he would not then take the life of their firstborn son. That's where they get the name Passover. And this final rebuke is what actually finally caused Pharaoh to release Israel from their bondage of slavery, and then he let God's people go just as he was demanding. And in order for this testimony to remain alive, in order for it to continue, God instructed Israel to celebrate this moment, to celebrate Passover every single year. And again, since their attendance was expected, many, many, many people showed up at this time in Jerusalem. Some commentators estimated almost 2 million people. 2 million people flooded Jerusalem, not counting refugees or people who were considered unclean. And that is why John is able to say this large crowd came to the feast, and it's from that crowd that these people came out. So we have the people who followed Jesus after the resurrection of Lazarus, and then these people of why they're at Jerusalem and who came out, uh, because they heard of the power. And they did this. They came out because they heard of his reputation. Or possibly they were there when Jesus did what he did while he was in Jerusalem. But regardless of which it is, word has spread about Jesus Christ and what he is capable of doing, and their national hope was high. Their national hope was high that this Jesus would be this final political Messiah for them and free them from this Roman rule. And that is why we see their type of response. 
We heard the crowd that followed Jesus and worshiping him, they just couldn't keep their mouth closed because they saw such a miraculous thing. And now we have their response as this is their hopeful political Messiah. And we see their response and why they did what they did in verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now the reason why they grabbed palm trees, this always confused me as a kid, like why suddenly palm trees? The reason why they grabbed these palm tree branches was because they had become a symbol of victory for the people in Israel. They become a symbol of victory for the Jewish people. You see, back in the second century B.C., during what is called the intertestamental period, we talked about this, it's literally the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the intertestamental period, Judas Maccabeus led the Jewish people in taking back Jerusalem from a foreign oppressor, and as a way of celebrating this hero, he was sort of like a, a Robin Hood of sorts, he led this charge, so they threw a celebration and a parade for him, with palm tree branches. Hence why now they, uh, this is why they celebrate. This is how they celebrated that political victory. And in their own words, they do the same thing here. In their own words, we can hear the same kind of hopefulness that they were celebrating with Judas Maccabeus. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You can almost hear it, finally. This is going to happen. Hosanna, if we literally translate it, it literally translates to mean, save us, we pray. Hosanna, save us, we pray. And it comes out of Psalm 118. It comes out of the psalm about this communication of God and His Word, Psalm 118.25. Even their next line comes from that same psalm, but this time it's verse 26. They say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They know what they are saying. They recognize there is something unique. They even go as far as to call Jesus the King of Israel. They call Him the King of Israel. Now, this isn't a quote from anywhere. This is more so just this call or this response based in their own blind desires. They yearn for him to be king so much. In fact, they're so blind and caught up in the emotion of the moment that they aren't even aware of what Jesus was communicating simply through his mode of transportation, right? They were so caught up in the moment, they didn't even see what he was actually riding upon. The mass of people were shouting, Hosanna, save us, we pray. Almost attempting again to force Jesus to be what they had hoped that he would be, this powerful general to rescue them from Rome. But instead of sauntering in on a war horse, Jesus humbly arrives on a young donkey. Instead of sauntering in on this war horse, I am the champion. He comes in humbly and lowly, arriving on a young donkey. Now, in the other Gospels, they, uh, the writers there explain how Jesus actually comes into possession of this animal, but the reason why he arranged for it to be this way is so he, because he consciously was fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. And we get a little piece of it there in the text, but let me read Zechariah 9.9 for us. It says this, Rejoice 
greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's just another name for Israel. Rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples' response to this moment, our third party, the disciples' response to this moment is confusion. Confusion. What is going on? Why is everyone doing this? But what I think that they already have learned by this time was as if they lacked any sense of understanding, all they needed to do was wait for it to come because their Lord would be faithful in providing for them right wisdom. Right? Is that not the same call for us? When we lack wisdom, when we don't really have the understanding that we need, what do we often need to do is to pray and seek the Lord, and He is faithful to give us His good wisdom. Amen. And so it went, and, and, and John tells us this in verse 16. He says this, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, right? This is after the cross, after his resurrection. After, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Again, so far we've discussed the response for worship in the crowd from Bethany, uh, the larger crowd who came out of Jerusalem, and now, just now, Jesus' disciples. So the only group we have left to talk about are the religious Jewish leaders. And if you remember back in chapter 11, they were part of what's called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, in fact, already decided to kill Jesus. They didn't even really have a reason. They just thought that they should kill Jesus because they believed, they too believed, like the crowd, they too believed that Jesus was about to start a revolution against Rome. But they also thought that that would bring ruin to the nation, and in turn, they would lose all their power and all their prestige. That is why Caiaphas declared that Jesus' life was but a small price to pay if it meant saving all the people of God. We hear the promise. We understand the underlying evil that Caiaphas is actually proclaiming. In, the, in, in their eyes, Jesus was condemned to die. They just had to figure out how to do it in a way that wouldn't publicly get the blood on their hands. That's what they were waiting for. And John goes on to tell us that it was the Pharisees, though, who disliked the collective's uh, patient approach in killing Jesus. They wanted this done. They were frustrated. They disliked the collective's patient approach in accomplishing what they had already decided to do. And if you recall... The Sanhedrin was made up of, uh, of two separate political groups. We had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these two groups, they actually really didn't agree on a whole lot, except probably for they didn't want to lose their power and prestige, right? Uh, that they could agree on that. No, we need to be in charge here. We have status. And the Pharisees, John quotes them in verse 19 saying, you see that as they're watching Jesus being worshipped? You see that? You are gaining nothing. The NIV translation quotes them like this. It says, see, this is getting us nowhere. From their perspective, action had to be taken. 
They had to do something because all they saw as they watched Jesus, as they watched the worship of Jesus, all they thought was that the longer we wait, the stronger he's going to get. Remember, they're all thinking politically. And then in their arrogance, here it comes, then in their arrogance, they once again prophetically declare God's great purpose and plan. In their seething animosity towards the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together simply by his word, they say, look, the world has gone after him. These last words here in verse 16 are both exciting. They're also devastating. Devastating because even in their rejection of Jesus, they couldn't help but declare the truth that he was the hope of the world. Spiritual blindness cannot be cured by power or status or popularity or authority. It can't even be cured by knowledge. The more you know does not cure spiritual blindness. These men were lost to their hard to the hardness of their hearts, which eventually led them to murder their own Messiah. And this truth is exciting. This truth is exciting. Earlier I said it was electric. That's how I felt as I wrote this sermon. It is electric. While reading the Bible to my youngest daughter, Fallon, uh, earlier this week, one morning, I asked her as we were reading, why is it that Adam and Eve were removed from the garden? And without hesitation and with uh, certainty on her brow, she says, well, because they didn't treat God as king. She understood who Jesus is, that he is the king. Again, unknowingly, this is exactly what the crowds of people are declaring. This is exactly what they are shouting. And if you notice, Jesus actually doesn't deny the title. Jesus doesn't deny the title of king of Israel. Jesus is king for the world. He is the king of the world. He created the world. The word world here doesn't mean universally. Doesn't mean that like all people are saved. It means that this good news though is for everyone from everywhere. Jesus has come to die in the place of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Amen? That is what the gospel is commuting. That is the call that we have as Christians to go out from this place and spread this good news and be a disciple making more disciples. Remember, this book, this gospel is about evangelism. We are to take in this truth, let it bring about this intense worship, worship for ourselves, and then let that, that, that excitement, that electricity... Bring us out to those who we know do not know the King. Jesus has come to die in the place of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We, being his creation, owe to him our complete obedience. He, being the creator, does not owe us, man nor woman, anything. But God came down to us and made something available for us that would otherwise never be ours. That is eternal life with him in his kingdom. We, the world, are to have gone after him. 
as he will always remain in his proper place as our king. It doesn't matter. This might sound strange. It doesn't matter how you feel about Christ. He is king. Our response does not change his position. He is who he is. This is not something that we can fully grasp until that actual revolution happens within ourselves. This is not something that we can grasp until a revolution happens within us. This revolution only happens when God, the Holy Spirit, has victory over you. That is what we are talking about. Hosanna, save us, please, we pray. Have victory over us. You must die to yourself and confess your allegiance to the king. Remember, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19 are just the practical first steps of Jesus as he humbly and lovingly makes his way to his own crucifixion, which he received with joy because he knew what it would mean for you. He humbly and lovingly, with joy in his heart, went to the cross because it would mean for you and for me. It is only through faith in him alone that we receive actual grace, that is, salvation. That is redemption. That is reconciliation. That is the inheritance of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is what's promised to you and me for salvation and faith in him alone. Because he purposed this plan from the beginning for his glory. Because he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we get to be holy and blameless in him, for him, because of him. He is our king and we will go after him. He is our king and we will go after him. That is the gift that we get. So I'll ask you, what is your response of worship to Jesus Christ who is the king of kings? What is your form of worship? If you would pray with me. Oh Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, the eyes and the ears and the heart to see and worship your son rightly. Lord, we honor him for who he is. Thank you, Lord, for the example, but also for the gift of salvation that comes through him alone. Father, I pray that you help us to worship You give us the confidence and the strength to die to ourself, turn from the world, and follow after him. Lord, be with us as a church. Please continue to keep us united to one another here in this broken place. We long for your return. Lord, we pray, Hosanna. Save us, please, Lord. We cry out, Maranatha. In Jesus' name, amen.